Good morning. Great time of worship and preparing our hearts to hear the Word of God. And it's amazing how much uh, Scripture is in those songs, isn't it? I don't know about you, but my mind just keeps going to the Scripture and chapter and verse, and, and it's a very incredible thing to realize that God has recorded for us His Word and His will and His purpose, both for our lives and for this world. So this morning, as we continue our series on Church Basics 101, we are going to talk on the missioned church. As I thought about it, for our purposes this morning, I'd like us to examine the commissioned church, which I think better communicates the missionary endeavors of the local church as well as the church worldwide. So although we as a church are to be missions-minded, to throw out a very overused term, uh, scripture tells us we are commissioned by our Lord himself to be that way. It's not optional. It's not something that we can either pass it off or uh, choose to let others believe in it, but uh, we're not going to believe in it. Because the missions mind, the word missions-minded seems to communicate that uh, being missions-minded is some kind of option in the Christian life. Whereas the term mission commission, to coin a new phrase, is a matter of obedience and faithfulness to the Word of God and to the glory of God. And we're going to see that as we go through this message. Now, recently at our last two missions committee meetings, we came up with a motto uh, that I believe really communicates this uh, and communicates the seriousness of missions in the church, and it was, it was this, witnesses to the end till all have heard. Let me repeat that. Witnesses to the end, and you can interpret that any way you want. The end of your life, the end of the church age, the end of our existence in this world. However you want to interpret it, witnesses till the end, till all have heard. That's our desire, that's our purpose, that's what we're striving for, is that everybody might hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is the only Savior. He is the only one who's conquered sin and death on our behalf. He is the only one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. That's it. That's why people need to hear. Bottom line. That's why we here at OEFC spend approximately 10% of our budget to support worldwide missions and the other 90% going to the support of the local church and and the ministries we originate here to reach our local population, but that 10% is the largest budget, individual budget within the church. Some people have a problem with that because if obviously we'd never be in debt if we weren't taking that 30 or 40,000 and not putting it towards missions, but there's a reason why it's the largest individual budget within the church, and we're going to see that as we go through this. Now, as we look at the missioned or commissioned church in the Scriptures, I want us to see basically three things. First of all, I want us to see the calling of the commissioned church. Then secondly, the plan of the commissioned church. And then lastly, the power of the commissioned church. And we'll go to the book of Acts for that to sort of set the, the tenor of all that. 
So to begin with, let's look at the calling of the Commission Church by turning to Matthew chapter 28 and looking at verses 18 through 20. And this is what is commonly called the Great Commission. In fact, in a practical sense, there is no greater commission than this in the Word of God. Jesus is about to depart this planet. He's about to ascend into heaven to take his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. And he calls the disciples to himself and he speaks to them. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Well, that's great. Now, if we are sons of God and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, all that authority has been given to us too, right? And what are we to do with that authority? Well, it says, go therefore, it's not the main verb, but it says, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, and you might add, in this endeavor. This is the purpose to the end of the age. Now, this is the granddaddy of all commissionings or commands. Uh, the disciples, and by extension the church, us, uh, they would establish, would be established, that, that, that by, anyway, the disciples and the church they would establish by going, making disciples of all nations, which is the main verb here, and they are commanded to go and spread the gospel, the good news of the Savior, thereby making disciples, thereby establishing churches, evidenced by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching those disciples to observe all that Christ has commanded us. That's the process. Go, make disciples, baptize, teach them, form churches, and then go out and do likewise. Unless we think this was a commissioning only for the apostles, Jesus' promise is that he would be with us unto the end of the age in this missionary endeavor. So what are we to be doing today? Has the age ended? No. We're to be going, making disciples, establishing churches, baptizing people as they identify with the brethren and the church and the ecclesia, the assembly, teaching them all to observe, and we do that to the end of time, your time or time time. <laughs> you see, missions is no sideshow. It's the main event. Make disciples by going and preaching the gospel, establishing churches, baptizing those who would identify with the church, and teaching them to know and observe all the Lord has commanded us that's God's main event, and that's what glorifies God. Interesting how simple that sounds, isn't it? We think it's, we've got to incorporate the world and draw the world in and be the world and, and make everything pretty for the world. But it's very simple the way God has, has uh, laid this out. Go, make disciples, establish churches, by baptizing, teaching, do this to the end of time. Now let me show you how this works. Let me show it to you again. Turn to the end of Mark, chapter 16. We'll be doing a lot of Bible flipping today. 
I love to hear the rustle of pages, unless you have, you know, the finger thing. In 1614, I'm just kidding, I actually do that now. In 1614, he says, afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves and were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Talking about guys who weren't easy to convince. You know, those who had seen the resurrected Lord told them until he actually appeared to them, they wouldn't believe it. He says, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he'd risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation, to all men. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. And that's an interesting thing where he is actually talking about the church. We believe in Christ that saves us. We get baptized into the church that shows our identity with a group of people as we're going to see as we proclaim the fact that we are Christ's bride, that we belong to him, that we belong to his people, not to the world. That's what baptism is. It's dying. It's the symbolic of dying with Christ, rising to newness of life, dying to sin, rising to life and forgiveness in Christ. And that's a public proclamation of that. And to publicly be part of the church is we proclaim to the world we belong to the church. We belong to Christ. We belong to Christ's people. But he says, he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And that's eternal condemnation. Now again, the plan is to go, preach the gospel, make disciples, establish churches, baptize people as they become part of the church, and then instruct them in what they believe, the word of God. That's sort of the total package. Now, I hope you're seeing a pattern here. So let me show it to you again. Turn to the end of the book of Luke. Again, Jesus is giving his parting words to his disciples. And he says in verse 44, and I would have loved to have been there. This must have been one of the most awesome teaching sessions that has ever been given. But he says, now he said to them, uh, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, the entire Old Testament. I would have loved to have heard the master teacher tell us what the Old Testament was all about in every detail that concerned himself. And then he said, and he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Not only did he teach them, he opened up their mind to understand what he was saying. Sometimes I wish I had that capacity. But we know the Holy Spirit has that capacity, right? And the Spirit of God works in and through our lives, and, and he opens up the Word of God to us, and that's an exciting thing. And what does he open up the Word of God to us about? It says, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, mark that, all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. It would start in Jerusalem. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, speaking of the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out without measure, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. 
Not only did he proclaim the message, but he also gave them the power to do what we are commissioned to do. Now here we see the commissioning more clearly defined. They, they were to preach the scriptures, they were to preach the gospel that Christ would suffer and die and three days later rise from the dead victorious over sin and death and as men repented of their sins they would be forgiven and they and by extension we are to take this message to the world also. That's our message. You know, we were praying down in the uh, Awana room for our missions prayer time on the fifth Sunday of when there is a fifth Sunday and one of the things we were talking about that the church is the only hope in this world because we have the only message of hope in this world. And I think sometimes we forget that. We, we kind of psychologize things and we kind of rationalize things and we politicize things. Let's get back to this, the gospel. The church is the only hope of the world because we have the only message that is the hope of the world. So I don't care what a man believes other than Christ, he's condemned. Those who disbelieve are condemned, period. We need to get that in our heads even as Christians and not compromise with the world and not play around with all the stuff going on in the world and just get down to the basics of the gospel. That's our message. That's what we take to the world as we reach out to them. We can, you know, you can do it in a thousand different ways. You can do it through uh, clean water supply and helping and socializing, but get to the message. Get to the only message that saves. Because eternity is a long time. Giving a guy food here and all that stuff is great and it's wonderful, but it only is temporary. We need to bring the gospel. It's the only eternal message in this world. Now turn to the end of the book of John. I love John's simplicity. I think John is the kind of guy I would have hung out with. He says in uh, John 20, verse 30, he says, Therefore many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. And then he says in 21, 25, as he ends his gospel, he says, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Christian publishing is trying to make that a null and void verse in the Bible, but we're, uh, we have way more books than you could ever read in ten lifetimes. But that's Jesus. That's who he is. He's the most complex personality in the entire universe. He is man, he is God, he is <laughs> incredible. They say there's more names in the Bible for the Son of God than there are days in the year. Just incredibly complex person. But amazingly knowable. And John brings that out, he says, But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the simplicity of the gospel, isn't it? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, and that believing you may have life in his name. What is the work of God? John, I think it's John 6, 46. The work of God is to believe in him whom he has sent. 
That's why the name of Jesus has been exalted for centuries ever since he came. And prior to that, it was prophesied that he would come. We'll see that as we uh, go through our Easter presentation, or our Resurrection Sunday, excuse me, presentation. Now, could John have made it any more simple? Our message to the world is believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have eternal life in his name. That's the good news to our dead and dying world, which we are commissioned to spread to the ends of the earth. I love that one verse in uh, John 15. He says, by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And what is that fruit? Well, part of that fruit is the fact that our lives are transformed and changed by the word of God, by the power of the spirit. But it, also that fruit is bearing that fruit in the lives of others. What we have, we give away. We give to others. We have the power to do that, to bind and loose. It's an amazing thing that we have an amazing message that is for all men, for all nations, to the glory of God. Turn to Acts chapter 1, flip over a page, and verse 6. The disciples, after seeing the resurrected Lord, are pretty excited about reigning with him. And they would have liked to have seen it happen instantaneously. <laughs> In verse 6, he says, So when they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Because... Who's going to reign on the 12 thrones over the 12 tribes of Israel? The disciples. But he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you, here's you, here's us, shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. You see, missions is the tsunami. We all know what a tsunami is. The commissioning that began on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God was poured out on the church without measure, and the ripple effects of that Day sent the tidal wave of the gospel through Jerusalem, then all Judea, then to Samaria, then to the remotest parts of the earth, or the Gentiles. And the ripple effects continue to this very day. That is such an amazing thing. Thus we have our motto, witnesses until the end, until all have heard. Because we're part of that tsunami, aren't we? Not quite sure where we are on the wave, but we're part of that tsunami, aren't we? We're still sweeping the world with the gospel. We're still part of that contingent that is to take the gospel to a dying world. So let's look at, secondly, what is God's plan for the commissioned church? Turn to Matthew 16. And you've heard this before, you've seen this before, you've read it multiple times before, but 
It says, when Jesus came in the district of Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16, 13, he was asking his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? That's the question of the ages, isn't it? Who is Jesus? Well, some people say he's just a man. Some people say he's a nice teacher or a martyr who died for a good cause. But who is he? Well, some said, uh, some say John the Baptist, and John the Baptist had been beheaded, but it's John the Baptist risen from the dead. Uh, some say Elijah, and Eli remember Elijah was taken up alive into heaven, but Elijah, this is Elijah come back. But uh, still others say Jeremiah, again, an old prophet risen from the dead, or one of the prophets who has risen from the dead. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And I love this. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the living God. He didn't understand that at this point. God gave him those words, Jesus said. He says, and Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I would imagine when Peter blurted this out, it was kind of like, well, whoa, where did that come from? Not quite sure, but, but uh, it was an amazing pronouncement because Peter, in the next who knows how long, just uh, maybe hours from then, would try to keep Christ from going to the cross. So he really didn't understand the full implications of what he was saying. And... Uh, Jesus says to him, I say to you, or Peter, Petros, and upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. And part of that has to do with the witness of Peter, the teaching of Peter, as far as the Christ was concerned and the profession he made, that the church would be built upon that profession. And he says, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Gates of hell will not stand against the church. You know, it's amazing in a lot of these areas how the church even exists in our world. It's amazing that there is a testimony in almost every land there is. It says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. And that's not... Forever. That's just for now, because they weren't ready to hear. He had not risen from the dead. And anyway, that's a whole nother sermon. But keep in mind, from these verses, I want us to understand one thing. That our Lord is doing one thing in this world, and that is building his church. We need to get that in our heads. That's why the church is commissioned to build the church, and we do that by spreading the gospel, making disciples, establishing other churches, by baptizing and teaching people as they come to Christ and including them in the body, and then sending them out to do the same, to continually repeat that process. That's the life and mission of the church if we're to be true to the Word of God. Listen to this quote from Andy Johnson, who... Uh, uh, who wrote the Nine Marks series book, Missions, How the Church Goes Global. See if you can't resonate with this. 
He says, the local church makes clear who is and who is not a disciple through baptism and membership in the body of Christ, Acts 2.41. The local church is where more, most discipling naturally takes place, Hebrews 10.24 and 25, as we stimulate one another to love and good deeds. The local church sends out missionaries, Acts 13.3, and cares for missionaries after they are sent out, Philippians 4.15 and 16. And healthy reproducing churches are normally the aim and end of our missionary effort. In other words, as we send those out, like Pablo and Karen, their goal is to establish the church, the believing church in Chile. That's the goal. It's not just to go be a nice person and learn the culture and learn how to make dill pickles. But why is God so committed so accomp uh, to accomplishing this great work of redemption through this church? Because he is passionate for his own glory, he has determined to act through history so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, Ephesians 3.10. God is committed to using the church to accomplish his work of redemption to display the glory of his wisdom to the universe. The church was God's idea. It is his one and only organizational plan for world missions. Most of all, it is his beloved son's beloved blood-bought bride. You can't believe how hard that was to get down. <laughs> Trying to say it five times fast. Consequently, any human invented organizations that assist in missions must remember that they are the bridesmaid, not the bride. He says they are stagehands, not the star. That position and honor and responsibility has been given by Christ to his church and only to his church. Organized cooperation among the churches for the sake of missions is a wonderful thing, but those who organize that cooperation must remember that they are coming alongside, not taking the place of the local church. It's because, of, it's because the Bible is so clear on this point that this little book is so unapologetically focused on the local church as the engine of world missions. Even as we consider our own individual commitment to the global mission, we should do so in the context of our roles as church members. If we are to understand how to pursue the mission faithfully, the local church must be central to identifying Identifying those who would be sent out, training them, sending, and helping support. It is a mission, it is, this mission has been given to the Christ church for Christ's glory. Now let me repeat those last two sentences. If we are to understand how to pursue our mission faithfully, the local church must be central to identifying, training, sending, and supporting. This mission has been given to Christ's church for Christ's glory. In other words, as we endeavor to build Christ's church, we spread the gospel, we make disciples, we establish churches, and then we identify, train, send, and help support those who will go and do likewise, often in other communities, other cities, foreign countries. That's the true dynamic of the church. church is always to be about the work of building the church 
That's our Lord's plan. In fact, that's his only plan. It's kind of hard to wrap your arms around that, isn't it? We are God's only plan for reaching the world. We're only God's plan for building the church, for establishing the church in foreign lands and cities and communities, wherever. That's us. That's our job. That's our calling as the church. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We need to let those words kind of sink into our psyche and understand what he's saying there. Thus our motto, witnesses until the end, until all have heard. We want to be involved in any opportunity that would come along that we can participate in that would build Christ's church. So, we've seen the calling and the plan of the Commission Church. Now, lastly, let's look at the power of the Commission Church when that calling and plan are followed. I want you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. And we'll spend the rest of our time in the book of Acts. We still have a little time, don't we? In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, Peter preaches a great sermon. The church is born. The ecclesia, the assembly of those who would believe, unite. And how do they do this? Well, in verse 41, he says there, he says, so then those who had received his word were baptized. They made a public statement of their profession in Christ. They were already saved. They made the profession that they now believed in Christ. And in that culture, it was like they died. They proclaimed Christ, and they were immediately ostracized in the Jewish culture. And it says... And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Well, added to what? Well, the church. The church was born that day. 3,000 souls were added to the assembly of believers. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together. Again, the assembly, they... They met together and had all things in common, and they were began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved, and they were adding to the assembly, the church in Jerusalem. In verse 27 of chapter 4, Peter and John get arrested. They escape with their lives. And they come back to the assembly and um, it says in verse 27, they're, they're praying to God and it says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom he anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. In other words, don't let persecution quiet us. Don't let the fact you can't pray in school keep you from praying in school. 
don't, you know, just don't cave in to society and its social pressures. They ask for confidence to do, proclaim God's word in spite of what others may think or do. He says, while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place in the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did they do? And they began to speak the word of God with boldness. Not only did they pray for boldness, God gave them boldness. Then in chapter 5, verse 12, it says that the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. I would, Im I would imagine this assembly of probably three to 5,000 by now was pretty awesome, pretty intimidating to the outside world. He says, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the Lord held, the people held them in high esteem, and all the believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. Although people feared them and, and held them in high esteem, people were just kept coming on into the assembly and were being baptized and being taught, and the church was growing and growing and growing. And uh, then it says, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets. And as Peter would walk by, his shadow would he actually heal them. Uh, that's an amazing thing. But also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem. And here you see the word is starting to spread out to Judea. Jerusalem, Judea. You see, the power of the tidal wave began in Jerusalem and as was planned... It spread to Judea, chapter 5, verse 16. And so what's next? Samaria. Well, how did that happen? Stephen's persecuted. He becomes the first martyr of the church. Chapter 8, verse 1 says this. Saul, and we know who Saul is, right? Who is Saul? Paul. He would become Paul. Saul means with the great king of Israel at that time before David, but... Paul means small. That would be the demeanor. He was small in his own eyes, but great in God's eyes. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. In other words, they laid his robes. It was in honor of Saul, actually, that they, they stoned Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of, what, Judea and Samaria. So God just says, okay, we're not going to make a Tower of Babel out of this in Jerusalem. Let's scatter them. So he brings them along Saul, and he begins to use Saul against his own will to spread the church, to spread the gospel. Here's, this may be Paul's, Saul's first missionary endeavor here, and he didn't even know he was doing it. Some devout men buried Stephen, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He'd put them in prison. Therefore, because of that, those who had been scattered went about preaching what? The word. Isn't that amazing? God even uses this persecution. You know, it's like this, this you have this giant bomb in Jerusalem just sitting there. Saul, Saul, because of his persecution, and lights the fuse, and the bomb goes off, and boom, 
everybody spreads out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and we read about Philip going down to Samaria, and uh, in verse 12 it says, but, but when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And then in verse 14, because you couldn't have a Jewish Jerusalem church and a Samaritan church that were in deference to one another. He says, now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. Isn't that great? Peter and John were sent to unite the churches and unite the, the Jews and the Samaritans in Christ. He says, uh, who came down and prayed for them and that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. The reason being is if it was a separate baptism or anointing of the Spirit here, you would have had two churches that were at each other's throats. Sound familiar? But uh, anyway, he said might receive the Holy Spirit. He had not fallen upon them. They simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. The two churches, Jewish and Samaritan believers, were united in Christ. And he says in verse 25, So then they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord. They started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. If you know the strife between Samaritans and Jews, this is one of the greatest miracles in the book of Acts you can imagine. Incredible things are going on here as the mission of the church spreads out to Judea, Samaria. Well, the plan was that it would be to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, or I guess you could say the Gentiles. Look at Acts chapter 10. <clears throat> And you all know the story. Cornelius has a vision, and at the same time, Peter has a vision. Cornelius was first. He said, go to, a, go to this place, to Simon the Tanner's house, and get Peter, and he'll preach a message to you. And Peter, as the people arrive at the door, is having this vision about with the sheet and the animals, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, no, I've never touched anything unclean. And God just says, well, what I proclaim clean, don't you consider unclean anymore. And so he goes with them without any misgivings. And in verse 34 of chapter 10, it says, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, whom God anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. 
not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us, ordered us, isn't that interesting? He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God, the judge of the living and the dead. Then it says, Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. That's where the gospel goes global. Now once the church was established in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and with the Gentiles, what was their mode of operation and purpose? Well, look at Acts 13. And you know the Acts is the history of the early church, but in chapter 13, there were at Antioch, and that was in Syria, or right around Syria. It says, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaeum, who has been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, or Paul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper, John Mark. So they begin to evangelize. The word has spread all the way to Antioch and probably a lot of other places. But uh, this church sent out missionaries. Now, what was the result of all this? Look at Acts 13, 44 through 49. It says, the next Sabbath, they're in Pisidia, Antioch, which is in Asia. But uh, the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord in the synagogue, right? But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord had commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, obviously they're pretty happy, uh, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as been appointed to eternal life believed, And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. That's just a small sampling of what took place in that early church and what has taken place ever since. Now, from the New Testament, we know the results. Those sent from Jerusalem and Antioch and many other churches, established churches in Rome, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, Thessalonica, Laodicea, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and just a host of other cities and other regions. 
too amazing to recount. And that has been the plan and purpose of the church to this very day. The, person, the, the purpose, the mission of believers who make up the assembly of the church is to establish and encourage the church both locally and worldwide. That's our mission. That's our, our purpose. At least part of that purpose. That's why we here at OEFC, as I said, give approximately 10% of our budget to missionaries around the world. As I said, that's the largest single ministry in the church, and well, it should be. That's why we have a missions fund, funded by our annual banquet and parking lot sales so we can participate in church building and various opportunities as they arise both here and around the world. It's an amazing thing, both locally and abroad. That's why we monthly and weekly feature various missionaries like Mary Alice. Where is Mary Alice? Anyway, like Mary Alice or uh, any one of a number of missionaries that we support uh, because we want you to know what's going on with their work and with their lives. That way we can be in prayer for them and ask the power of God to be evident and, and be upon their lives. Uh, that's why we have a lively missions committee to identify both opportunities and people, such as our support for those who helped uh, at the Johnny and Friends camp. Uh, we helped uh, Pablo and Karen on their reconnaissance mission to Chile. And uh, we helped just a host of other things uh, in Uganda and Kenya and so on and so forth. It's exciting to do. It's an exciting. If you want to be part of that missions committee, see me afterwards. Well, at this point, I think I've said enough. But my hope and prayer is that we all understand the commissioning and mission of our church in a much stronger way, and we seek to build Christ's church both locally and worldwide. There's a reason for missions. There's a reason for a budget for missions. There's a reason why we want to take in money that we can use to help building churches and the various opportunities that go along with that. Um, we want to be spreading the gospel. We want to be making disciples through the word of that gospel. We want to be establishing churches as the disciples are gathered together into one place to worship and honor and glorify God. Um, we want to baptize them as they come to Christ. We want to teach them as they come to Christ and continue teaching them and maturing them. That, And the reason being that they might go and repeat that commissioning in our world, both locally and abroad. We'd love to see people sent out from this church to other countries, to other communities. We, uh, until people... Um, discontinue their membership in the church. We keep track of them and, and follow them and encourage them to get involved in other churches that would be like-minded to do the same thing, to be mission-commissioned churches. Because this is God's plan. It's an exciting plan. 
And this is what brings him glory because God is all about building his church. It's the one thing he said he would do in this world, build his church. How does he do that? Well, through us going, sharing the gospel, making disciples, establishing churches as we baptize and teach people in the church and we train them and get them ready to go out and do the same. That's why missions. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, uh, I hope not too confusing a message, but Lord, thank you what your word says about missions and just the, the joy and the glory that brings you as we spread the gospel, as we make disciples, as we build the church, as we baptize, as we teach, as we mature believers and and train people to go out and do the same to share the gospel and repeat that process. So God, we thank you that uh, we are part of that tidal wave that began in Jerusalem that day of Pentecost. Thank you that the ripple effects are still evident and still going on strongly in our world today. Thank you for the church around the world that that wins people to Christ, that establishes them in Christ, and sends them out in Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.